0: Chapter Seventeen, Part Two of Popular History of Ireland, Book Eleven by Thomas Darcy Magee, Read for into the Public Domain. The Insurrection Elsewhere. Fate of the Leading United Irishmen. Meanwhile, the whole of the Royalist forces were now in movement toward the capital of Mayo, as they had been toward Vinegar Hill two months before. Sir John Moore and General Hunter marched from Wexford toward the Shannon. General Taylor, with twenty-five hundred men. "'advanced from Sligo towards Castlebar, "'Colonel Maxwell was ordered from Enniskillen to assume command at Sligo. "'General Nugent, from Lisburn, occupied Enniskillen, "'and the viceroy, leaving Dublin in person, "'advanced rapidly through the Midland counties to Kilbegan, "'and ordered Lord Lake and General Hutchinson, "'with such of their command as could be depended on, "'to assume the aggressive from the direction of Tome. "'Thus Humbert and his allies found themselves surrounded on all sides.' their retreat cut off by sea, for their frigates had returned to France immediately on their landing, three thousand men against not less than thirty thousand, with at least as many more in reserve, ready to be called into action at a day's notice. The French general determined, if possible, to reach the mountains of Letram, and to open communications with Ulster and the northern coast, upon which he hoped soon to see succor arrive from France. With this object he marched from Castlebar to Coluny, thirty-five miles, in one day. Here he sustained a check from Colonel Brecker's militia, which necessitated a change of route. Turning aside, he passed rapidly through Dramahane, Manor Hamilton, and Ballantra, making for Grenard, from which accounts of a formidable popular outbreak had just reached him. In three days and a half he had marched one hundred and ten miles, flinging half his guns into the rivers that he crossed, lest they should fall into the hands of his pursuers. At Ballinamuck, county Longford, on the borders of Letram, he found himself fairly surrounded, on the morning of the 8th of September, and here he prepared to make a last desperate stand. The end could not be doubtful, the numbers against him being ten to one. After an action of half an hour's duration, two hundred of the French having thrown down their arms, the remainder surrendered as prisoners of war. For the rebels no terms were thought of, and the full vengeance of the victors was reserved for them. Mr. Blake, who had formerly been a British officer, was executed on the field. Matthew Tone and Teeling were executed within the week at Dublin. Mr. Moore, president of the provisional government, was sentenced to banishment by the clemency of Lord Cornwallis, but died on shipboard. Ninety of the Longford and Kilkenny militia who had joined the French were hanged, and the country generally given up to pillage and massacre. As an evidence of the excessive thirst for blood, it may be mentioned that at the recapture of Killala a few days later, four hundred persons were killed, of whom fully one half were non-combatants. The disorganization of all government in France in the latter half of 98 was illustrated not only by Humbert's unauthorized adventure, but by a still weaker demonstration under General Ray and Napuritandi about the same time. With a single armed brig, these daring allies made a descent, on the seventeenth of September, on Rathlin Island, well equipped with eloquent proclamations, bearing the date first year of Irish Liberty. From the postmaster of the island they ascertained Humbert's fate, and immediately turned the prow of their solitary ship in the opposite direction. Ray, to rise in after times to honour and power, Tandy, to continue in old age the dashing career of his manhood and to expiate in exile the crime of preferring the country of his birth to the general centralizing policy of the empire with which he was united. Twelve days after the combat at Bellinemuc, while Humbert and his men were on their way through England to France, a new French fleet, under Admiral Bombard, consisting of one seventy-four-gun ship, the Hoche, eight frigates, and two smaller vessels, sailed from Brest. On board this fleet were embarked three thousand men under General Hardy, the remnant of the army once menacing England. In this fleet sailed Theobald Wolfe Tone, true to his motto, Neil Desperandum, with two or three other refugees of less celebrity. The troops of General Hardy, however, were destined never to land. On the 12th of October, after tossing about for nearly a month in the German Ocean and the North Atlantic, they appeared off the coast of Donegal and stood in for Swilly. But another fleet also was on the horizon. Admiral Sir John Borlase Warren, with an equal number of ships, but a much heavier armament, had been cruising on the track of the French during the whole time they were at sea. After many disappointments, the flagship and three of the frigates were at last within range, and the action began. Six hours' fighting laid the hoche, a helpless log, upon the water. Nothing was left but her surrender. Two of the frigates shared the same fate on the same day, another was captured on the fourteenth, and yet another on the seventeenth the remainder of the fleet escaped back to France. The French officers landed in Donegal were received with courtesy by the neighbouring gentry, among whom was the Earl of Cavan, who entertained them at dinner. Here it was that Sir George Hill, son-in-law to Commissioner Beresford, an old college friend of Tone's, identified the founder of the United Irishman under the uniform of a French adjutant-general. Stepping up to his old schoolmate, he addressed him by name, which Tone instantly acknowledged, inquiring politely for Lady Hill and other members of Sir George's family. He was instantly arrested, ironed, and conveyed to Dublin under a strong guard. On the 10th of November he was tried by court-martial and sentenced to be hanged. He begged only for a soldier's death, to be shot by a platoon of grenadiers. This favour was denied him, and the next morning he attempted to commit suicide. The attempt did not immediately succeed, but one week later, on the 19th of November, he died from the results of his self-inflicted wound, with a compliment to the attending physician upon his lips. Truth compels us to say he died the death of a pagan, but it was a pagan of the noblest and freest type of Grecian and Roman times. Had it occurred in ancient days, beyond the Christian era, it would have been a death every way admirable. As it was, that fatal final act must always stand between Wolfe Tone and the Christian people for whom he suffered, sternly forbidding them to invoke him in their prayers, or to uphold him as an example to the young men of their country. So closed the memorable year, 1798, on the baffled and dispersed United Irishmen. Of the chiefs imprisoned in March and May, Lord Edward had died of his wounds and vexation, Oliver Bond of apoplexy, the brothers Shears, Father Quigley, and William Michael Byrne on the gibbet. In July, on Samuel Nelson's motion, the remaining prisoners in Newgate, Bridewell, and Kilmainham agreed, in order to stop the effusion of blood, to expatriate themselves to any country not at war with England, and to reveal the general secrets of their system without inculpating individuals. These terms were accepted, as the Castle Party needed their evidence to enable them to promote their cherished scheme of legislative union. But that evidence, delivered before the committees of Parliament by Emmett, McNevin, and O'Connor, did not altogether serve the purposes of government the patriotic prisoners made it at once a protest against and an exposition of the despotic policy under which their country had been goaded into rebellion for their firmness they were punished by three years confinement in fort george in the scottish highlands where however a gallant old soldier colonel stewart endeavored to soften the hard realities of a prison by all the kind attentions his instructions permitted him to show these unfortunate gentlemen at the Peace of Amiens, 1802, they were at last allowed the melancholy privilege of expatriation. Russell and Dowdle were permitted to return to Ireland, where they shared the fate of Robert Emmett in 1803. O'Connor, Corbett, Allen, Ware, and others cast their lot in France, where they all rose to distinction. Emmett, McNevin, Sampson, and the family of Tone were reunited in New York where the many changes and distractions of a great metropolitan community have not even yet obliterated the memories of their virtues their talents and their accomplishments it is impossible to dismiss this celebrated group of men whose principles and conduct so greatly influenced their country's destiny without bearing explicit testimony to their heroic qualities as a class if ever a body of public men deserved the character of a brotherhood of heroes so far as disinterestedness courage self-denial truthfulness and glowing love of country constitute heroism these men deserve that character the wisdom of their conduct and the intrinsic merit of their plans are other questions as between their political system and that of burke grattan and o'connell there always will be probably among their countrymen very decided differences of opinion that is but natural but as to the personal and political virtues of the united irishmen there can be no difference The world has never seen a more sincere or a more self sacrificing generation. End of chapter 17, part 2